How do you get to grips with your screenplay? How do you overcome writer's block? I'm joined by Sam Wilson and Matthew Khalil on the Three Wells podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host and film critic, Spling. In this episode, we'll discuss the ins and outs of screenwriting with our renowned guest through the lens of Matthew's book, The Three Wells of Screenwriting. Sam Wilson is an author whose first novel, Comedia, earned him an MA with distinction from UCT. He has since gone on to write the acclaimed international sci-fi thriller Zodiac. He has also written, developed, and directed a number of television programs and documentaries, best known for Monkey and Trunk, Jungle Beat Explorers, and Urbo, The Adventures of Pax Africa. He's currently working as a writer and director at Sunrise Productions. Matthew Khalil is an author, lecturer, and screenwriter with over 20 years of experience in directing, editing, and writing for film. The versatile and influential writer has continued to sharpen his craft through script editing, acting, and coaching the filmmakers of tomorrow. His inspirational and empowering new book, The Three Wells of Screenwriting, offers a fresh perspective and cross-section of his broad and deep understanding of film when it comes to the writing process. Over to you, Matthew. Thanks, Bling. Cool. Well, I'm very excited to have Sam here at our podcast with us. I've known Sam for some time, and I've always thought Sam is just, he's got something. We'll see if we can uncover what that something is in the podcast. But it's very imaginative, amazing creative energy, and yeah, I'm just really happy to have you here, Sam. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Sam. I've realized that with a lot of the other podcasts before, I kind of jumped straight into it. But I wanted to ask you a question that's a little bit more abstract is, did you always want to be a writer? And how far back can you remember this this sort of urge to be creative? I can remember as a seven-year-old kid writing little stories. And it ties my two different fascinations together because I was always interested in writing, but I was always also looking at creative objects or techniques. As a kid, I used to take dominoes and I used to set them up in an exact pattern so that if you knocked the right sequence at the beginning, the patterns of the dominoes would interfere with each other and would solve mathematical problems. So you could, it was very simple binary, like 10 plus 01 equals. Amazing. So that's the kind of thing I used to do. So as a kid, I would write choose your own adventure books. I'm sure quite a few creative people do that, but it's a wonderful experiment. Firstly, you don't have to make a creative decision. You can choose all the options. But secondly, because there's a real fascination to try to work out a plot from every single different possible angle and, you know, give the readers a a satisfying experience no matter what they choose. How did the sort of interest in writing translate into you actually getting a job writing on a show? The thing is, and I don't mean this lightly, I'm lucky. And I know that that's a very kind of vague kind of word, but luck is doing a certain amount of work and knowing what you want so that when the opportunity comes along, you're ready for it. So I was writing scripts. I was coming up with all these different ideas. I was playing in a lot of different fields so that when by chance my my housemate had a brother who happened to be briefly attached to direct a sitcom and I had done just enough work so that when I handed in a sample script, it was good enough and I had just enough behind me for them to give me a chance. It was a a local production. It was very, very low budget, but I was in a position to do my, you know, to give it my best shot. And that's how I got started. That's amazing. I I totally hear you on the luck front. Have you heard of the Professor Richard Wiseman? He's a British psychologist and magician as well. But he's done a fascinating experiment where he took a bunch of people who claimed that they were lucky and a bunch of people who claimed that they were unlucky. And he got them to do a simple thing where he asked them to flip through a newspaper and count the number of faces you can see in the newspaper. But on one of the pages at the back of the newspaper, he put an advert saying, if you see this, tell the researcher and they will give you five pounds. 
And all the lucky people saw the advert and all the unlucky people didn't because the unlucky people are people who are just focused on one particular thing and the lucky people are ones who are doing what they're meant to do but also just keeping their eyes open for the, the wider picture and the bigger world. Wow, that is fascinating and not at all surprising either. No, no, that's interesting. <laughs> no, no, that is, that is going to be in the podcast. I actually heard about that experiment and I think it's to do with seeing opportunities where other people can't see them and also being open to actually taking those opportunities yeah, exactly. And and I mean, it does fit into the theme of this podcast, which is inspiring writers to tell stories that matter to them and also just inspiring writers in general. And I think it can be really, you know, you know what it's like. It's You've written the script again and again and again. And you just keep and I think people get very focused on either the one story they have to tell. This is my story. This is my script. I'm speaking from experience. Here. I've also done this and I must tell my table view story or else. And then. You don't open yourself up to the other possibilities out there. So, yeah, nice nice little anecdote. Thank you. I think I'm going to start off also by just talking about Zodiac, which is a book uh, Sam wrote. Uh, when did you write it? I wrote it about three years ago now. I want to do a little experiment here, which is normally on the Three Wells podcast. We have little trailers for the for the movies or the um, TV series that people are going to look at. And I thought um, we don't have a book trailer for Zodiac, but we do happen to have Spling, whose voice I really like. So uh, I'm going to ask Spling to read us the blurb of Zodiac in a sort of a trailer-type voice. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> in a volatile society, ruled and divided by its citizens, Zodiac signs... A serial killer is on the loose. Is it a misguided revolution or something more sinister? So, Sam, what did that feel like to hear your sort of mini trailer? I mean, I, I heard that and I thought, oh, I've got to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thank you for that. So what happened was the, the reason I wrote this, this particular book is because I was writing this Roman comedy novel. On the basis of that Roman novel, I got an agent and he sent it to all the different publishers. An editor at Penguin UK called Emmett Akhtar read it and then read it again and sent me a very nice email saying, listen, this is a fantastic book. I really enjoy it. I can't sell it right now because there are too many Roman novels coming out in a glut right now. But do you have any other ideas that you're interested in? And luckily, I had a, I'm always kind of coming up with new things. So I wrote out like five or six different very, very diverse ideas. And he picked out the Zodiac idea and said, this is the one, go for this. And it's done very, very well. It's been translated into seven different languages. It's a surprising success because on the day before I sent it off to the editor, I thought I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I have wasted one and a half years of my life. I've alienated a publisher, you know, a big yeah. publishing house. They're never going <laughs> to ask me to do anything again. I guess just because as a creator, you're always far too close to your own work. It's funny, uh, you said luckily enough. You actually said that in your little discussion. And I was like, no, it's not luck that he's got all these ideas hanging around. It's hard work. So with the three wells of screenwriting, we've got these external sources wells, imagination wells, and memory wells. It seems to me like sort of one of the things in the book, I talk about these colliding ideas. So you've got Zodiac signs, you've got detective novel, you kind of combine them, and then you get this explosion of ideas. Was that sort of your creative process, or how would you describe it? The creative process came about by taking two different things, which is, the, again, yes, the idea of Zodiac signs, but also the idea of racism and religious intolerance and identity and uh, clashing those things together. Because Zodiac signs are a, a relatively safe way in which people divide themselves or identify themselves. It's, you know, they say, okay, I'm a Libra, therefore I'm like this, therefore, and if I meet someone and I know that they're Aries, I'm going to be on the lookout for this, 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 and that. Again, I think that this comes down to the external sources well, that I was reading a, psych again, a, a psychology paper, which was talking about the fact that zodiac signs are actually a relatively 
accurate way of uh, identifying people that if if someone knows they're a Libra, when they, you know, when you do a psychological test on them, they have all those Libra qualities. Or if they're a Virgo, then yes, they are often attentive to detail and all those kinds of things. But only if they already know about zodiac signs and they already are invested in them. If they're not, then it's no better than chance. Now, that's remarkable because that suggests quite strongly that what you believe about yourself ends up being true. And if that's the case, there's some terrifying implications for that. Racism. If you really believe that you are better than everyone else, then you end up being more successful simply because of that belief. It's a wrong belief. Mm-hmm. It's inaccurate. But worse, if you believe that if you've spent your whole life being told that you're lesser than other people, then you're going to be less successful. And it's an absolutely shocking thing to, to realize. And talking about it in terms of zodiac signs is a way of exploring those ideas in a way which doesn't have the, the knives out political charge. Mm-hmm. You have to think about the world as objectively as possible in order to challenge these things. Mm. But deep down inside, I'm really trying to, in in as interesting and as objective way as possible, look at humanity and society and how those things fit together, Mm. while at the same time trying to tell a kind of rip-roaring tale of... You know, crime and corruption, heartbreak and murder. <laughs> I'm watching Sam discuss this. It's really interesting. He, When you started talking about the complexity of the world and, and, and racism, you did this thing with your hands, which is the same thing you did when you were talking about those dominoes and those complicated. <laughs> it's almost like you're looking at the world like the thing I want to sort it out. I must understand. And Rubik's it is complicated. Cube. It's the Rubik's Cube again, mm. the Rubik's Cube of society. What I'm also seeing is the passion kind of spark off on you about this, seeing this, these sort of injustices and getting quite kind of... Um, riled up about them? Is, is that something that drives you in a way? There is that. I find that I'm not very good at getting angry. I, I get very worked up and then I kind of have to laugh at myself because often I realise that the things which I'm getting angry at are things inside myself which I actually need to, to look at rather than just raging and, and foaming at, at the rest of the world. If I look at Zodiac and then um, I know your next book that you're writing, and maybe we can talk about that briefly, is, can I say? Yes, yes? Okay. okay. It's a Western sort of set on Mars. So do you, do you sometimes look at society and think, oh, I wish it could be different? Yes. Yes, I do. The difficulty is that I recognize that it's an unbelievably complicated problem, and I don't think that there's any simple solution. The only thing I can really do is to try and reflect what I see as accurately as possible, to try and give people different perspectives so that they can engage with it themselves as, as well as they can and to be honest about the influence which I'm having in the world and whether or not it's making things, in my estimation, better or worse. Fantastic. Yeah, very interesting. It's very honest. I'm finding it so interesting doing these podcasts and authors, we, we, we think about what we do. It's quite interesting. We're quite reflective. I think you have to be in any kind of honest, creative field. And I think particularly authors and scriptwriters because you're dealing with people's inner lives. Without taking away anyone else's voice, you do have to have that basic level of empathy mm. in order to be able to create a, a living universe in which people are interacting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this empathy thing. Putting oneself in someone else's shoes as a writer, is that something that's taught, learnt, or innate? Yeah, how do we teach empathy if we have to teach writing? That's an extraordinary question. There are different depths that you can engage with it. You can just simply... Put like, like virtual reality, you can put yourself exactly as you are into someone else's position. Think, okay, I am in wearing these clothes. I have this amount of money in my bank account. I have these people as my family and friends, and th- this is the situation I am in. And I think that that's at least one stage. You're going to get certain emotional responses from being in a particular situation. 
Then there's the slightly more complicated thing, which is thinking, well, if I had this particular past, I would believe these different particular things. I would be engaging with the situation in a different way. And it's a, not the way I, as a writer, would be dealing with it, but it's it's the way that I am. And that's more challenging in some ways mm. because then you have to, you may absolutely disagree with the way that that particular character is engaging with the world, but you have to admit that they are being honest to themselves and to their backgrounds and to their pasts. It is tricky because the world is coming to realize that white males aren't necessarily the best people to be telling everyone's story. So mm -hmm. you can put yourself into the shoes of a, you know, a black lesbian living in New York mm. and you can do your best about that. But there are some things where any actual black lesbians are going to turn around and say, you son of a bitch. Exactly, yeah, what's <laughs> you really shouldn't be putting words into my mouth. Thank you very much. I think empathy is kind of tied in a lot with judgment. Because in order to be able to actually meet someone where they're at, you need to have almost experienced what they've experienced in order for them to take you seriously in terms of giving them advice on what to do next. And when we have someone do something, you know, we can choose to have a generous excuse, which would be to believe the best in that possible situation. And I think sometimes even affording that person extra space just because of who they are, where they've come from, uh, that generous excuse can be, well, you know, they've gone through this and that's probably why they did this. So I think there's there's an interesting sort of um, interlinking there between how we judge people and how we can actually be empathetic towards them. Absolutely. I'm sure in your writing, you know, you need to actually have an extra dose of empathy because you might be writing horrible characters. You almost want to have enough empathy so that you're not judging them in your writing. Well, the thing is that no one's horrible mm. to themselves. Well, I mean, some people are, but, <laughs> but you know, self-hating people are. But generally speaking, most people get quite frustrated with, you know, the American right, because I think that they are being incredibly uh, selfish and self-centered in their in their political views. I think that they're, you know, not recognizing the humanity of other people. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that to themselves, they think that they are being heroes. They're where they're looking mm -hmm. after their people, where there's all the lying mainstream media who are making them out to be terrible, terrible folk. And they're just good salt of the earth, hardworking Americans. In their own heads, they are the heroes. I mean, that's script writing 101, that no one is a compelling villain believes themselves to be the hero. Absolutely. And also, as an audience member, you're going to be a lot more interested in a villain who kind of has a point. They just take things beyond a line which you would Thanos. not cross. Thanos. or or even <laughs> Killmonger. Killmonger was right mm. to an extent. I don't particularly want to live a world in a world in which he wins. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to take it back down to Earth, although it's not going to be Earth because I'm going to talk about Urbo, which is a uh, show that Sam uh, wrote on. And there were a lot of amazing writers on that. And Grieg, uh, who's been one of our guests here, was writing on it as well. It seemed to me like almost like a mythic time in South African um, animation history. And can you tell us a bit about that project, how it came about and how you came to write on it? And if you'd learned anything while writing on it and what that would be? Yes, it was absolutely extraordinary. It was, I think, the longest-running animated South African TV show. We were churning out, <laughs> and we really were churning it out, one episode per week. Obviously, wow. we weren't writing, animating, and mastering every, well, one episode a week. You know, the pipeline was eight, eight or nine weeks, so we'd write a script, and then eight or nine weeks later, the final episode would come out. Lauren Bjorkus was the head writer on that project, and she brought together a team which was me, Sarah Lotz, Greg Cameron, uh, yeah. But it was wonderful to be sitting in a room with those three other people and churning out ideas and recognizing each other's talents and really working those stories. 
What was fantastic about Erbo was that it was coming out at a time when SABC were commissioning these shows because it was a, technically a children's show. They weren't watching us. <laughs> and that's great because we were able to say things at the time about the importance of antiretroviral drugs, for example. We were doing that in a metaphorical way, but we were absolutely making comments at that time about things like the, <laughs> the treatment action campaign and Amazing. things like that. It was a fantastic playground for script writing. We were doing it without much interference. We could really explore with plot structure, with storytelling, with our characters, with having quite some complicated character dynamics and things like that in, in that particular mm. world. There were big limitations. And anyone who's writing for animation will quickly learn that you think that animation, anything can happen. And that's not the case at all. Okay. You have pre-created assets, which means that your characters... Once you've created a character, it's much easier to reuse a character you've already used than to create a whole new character. Or uh, if you've got a location, it's much, much, much cheaper to reset an <laughs> action in that location than to draw an entirely new one. But that's good storytelling. Using a limited number of characters, bringing back a character we've already established so that the audience already invested in them makes a lot more sense than um, creating a whole new character from scratch. The most important thing I, we learned doing that was, firstly... The fact that there was 104 episodes. So we had to learn to absolutely not be precious about our creativity. That we all have those stories we need to tell, and it's important. But simply doing something, creating things that many times in that many different ways, means you really learn the mechanics of the storytelling so that when you have to tell your own personal story, you are absolutely on point in terms of craft. Mm. The other thing which was very useful is that it wasn't just that room full of writers working every week we'd finish our scripts and then we'd take them to a room full of animators and we would perform it we'd each take some characters and we'd read it aloud and that's very useful for script writers because firstly there's a difference between the word on the printed page and when you hear it mm. things which seem very brisk and quick on the page when you say them out loud they go slow like anything more than three lines on a page is often mm. starts to drag mm. and also there it was a a room full of very smart, funny people who would often be able to throw in extra gags here and there and punch up, which was fantastic. Absolutely. I love that about animation is that there's often animation scripts for me when I, when I watch them. I'm like, this is great. There's been this process with, I think, most animation studios is that they'll go and they'll read it to the team of amazing creative animators who'll just kind of throw in, oh, no, but this could be funny. Or, I mean, having read scripts out in front of people before and audiences... You feel when they are not listening. You feel it in your soul. It's really humbling. And I think uh, we don't do that enough, I don't think, in, in South Africa. Whereas this was, for me, the closest we came to a writer's room in, in South Africa. I've spoken to a lot of local writers and no one really, we don't have that writer's room experience here. But that sounds like it was a sort of an incubator of ideas. And was it a bit like that? It was. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about writing and particularly comedy script writing. And uh, in one of them, the Rule of Three podcast, they were saying something very interesting about the difference between the way English and, to an extent, South African writing teams work and in America. In America, you have this long history of improvised comedy. So you have the Second City, you have Upright Citizens Brigade, you have these uh, groups of improvisers who are really good at working with each other and bouncing ideas off each other. And often they just take a whole writing room out of improvisers. So when you have create those scripts, they're fast, they're funny, they generate a lot of jokes. Whereas English in South Africa, because of often budgetary restraints, you end up with one person or maybe, if you're lucky, two people mm. sitting together in a room 
and they write the first six. There's a reason why those seasons are only six episodes long. You get, you know, they run out of you, ideas. You run out yeah. of ideas. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we were very lucky to have a writer's room because then you, you can generate hun- literally hundreds of ideas Amazing. because it's not just, you know, six ideas from one person. As soon as you have a room working together as a hive mind, you can keep on going indefinitely. Absolutely. Cool. So I think I'm heading towards the end now. Let's talk a little bit about writers who don't have writer's rooms and don't have hive minds to, to access. Can you tell me, where do you write when you write alone at home? Do you have a place that you write? And can you tell me about that space? Again, very lucky. I was writing at home in my study. And the only thing which sets it aside as a writing room is a handwritten thing I've stuck up on the wall saying, sight, taste, smell, sound, emotion, and feeling, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have a, such a script writing background, it's easy for me to just focus on the dialogue and on the, the thoughts of the characters. And it's important for me just to constantly pull myself back into the physicality of the world. And it tells you a lot about the characters' lives, what they pick out of the world. Like everything which, which is visible to the characters is also telling you about the way the character is seeing the world and the way they are relating to it. And so just focusing on that really, for me, I think, helps my writing. That's amazing. It's very similar to a thing I have in the book about putting yourself in the character's shoes again, but using the five senses. Mm. And that's, I've never actually heard it explained in that way. I love it. Is that we all uh, mediate the world. You know, we're all in this room now, four men mm. doing a podcast, and we're all seeing different things in this room and hearing different things. And that's amazing subjectivity. And, and you can do that in screenwriting without overly explaining things, just by knowing that this is the medium that, that we're dealing with. That's fascinating. Where are you writing now? Since the birth of my daughter, that study has become my daughter's bedroom. So I'm very lucky in that I've been working at Sunrise Productions for the last three years. And the boss, Phil Cunningham, has said while I'm on sabbatical writing my novel that I can use a spare office. So I have my own little private desk. I have a nine to five. Go there, sit down, write and come back home which is really great because I love my daughter to pieces and I know that if I were at home, she would be the priority. So does it work for you? Do you get in what right nine to five? How does the day unfold? I have the danger of getting lost in my own head. And the problem with getting lost in your own head is that one of the exits from that particular forest is off into Facebook mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> Wikipedia Instagram, or something YouTube. like that. I've got a couple of tools which have absolutely made my writing 100% more productive. The first one is a simple logical thing where there's a thing called Forest on my phone. You put in a time on your phone, like, say, 120 minutes, and time will start counting down. And if you leave that app within that time limit, then your little forest which is growing will die. Basically, it's a little little encouragement to not use your phone. All you have to do is put it down and not look at your phone. And that's a lovely thing. The other thing is a, a thing called Freedom, which just cuts off your internet full stop for the day, you cannot use your internet, and that's great. And then the third thing, which is I tell other writers this, and they look at me like I'm insane. It's a thing called Flow State, and it's an app on your computer. You put in a timer, like, say, 15 minutes or 30 minutes. It gives you a blank screen. You start typing. And if at any point you stop typing for more than five seconds, it'll delete everything you've written since you started. And so you have to keep on going Genius. forward. And that's so useful for me because... 
I keep on stopping and thinking and trying to get the exact phrase which should be coming out of the character's mouth or just getting too bogged down in the mechanics of exactly how things are working when I really need to just state exactly what's happening in that particular moment. And that's been fantastic. I can get two, three thousand words easily done per day if I'm using those tools properly. That's incredible. It's almost like forcing you to make a vomit draft. It's fantastic. I love all the. I'm going to download all these apps immediately. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. That's fantastic. One other question before we're done is... One of the things that I hope to do with my book is unstuck people, people who are stuck. And I think it's because I've also been stuck feeling afraid to write or feeling writer's block if such a thing exists. What advice do you have to writers who are feeling stuck in their writing or just afraid to write? Honestly, the simple truth is writing something bad is so much better than writing nothing. I'm so, so glad that I've worked on enough TV shows that I know that Having been forced to just write again and again and again means that I'm always over that stumbling block. And it's the thing which I'm the most grateful for in my career. There's a wonderful online celebrity called Zay Frank. He has a a thing called An Evocation for Beginnings, which is a wonderful little poem he wrote, which is simply saying why it's important to go from zero to one. And he says that perfectionism may uh, look all spiffy in his shiny shoes, but everyone hates him and no one's going to invite him to a pool party. (laughs) Uh, It's that kind of thing. It's that if you spend your time just doing 10 bad things, then you will in that time have learned how to do something good and you will have 10 more things than someone who has spent their entire time trying to get things perfect. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's reminding me of a quote which I'm going to get totally wrong, but it's easier to rewrite a page of errors than to rewrite a blank page. Mm -hmm. So just get something out there and then then do it. So uh, thanks so much. I feel like we've been on a trip into the stars, not just with Zodiac, but literally into the sort of stratosphere of writing theory. And my brain is kind of like stuck up there with this massive Rubik's Cube in the sky. But thank you so much, Sam. And we have a little tradition here on the Three Wells podcast, but we have this little thing here, which is a cheese ball. Oh, which thank we give, you very much. <laughs> we give to all our guests a little bit of parmesan cheese made oh. in South Africa. You grate it off with a knife into your pasta, and it's very nice. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for joining us for the Three Wells podcast. Please subscribe for our updates, and we'll catch you next time.